Welcome to the Age of Audio. My name's Graham Brown from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. The Age of Audio is a series of conversations with thought leaders and changemakers in the world of audio. That's podcast, radio, and social audio, converging with big data to create engaging and authentic content for a new generation of listeners. Uh, I read uh, somewhere that it's anecdotal. 80% of true crime podcast listeners are women. Why do you think that is? Do you think that's true, firstly? And secondly, if that's the case, why? That's a very good observation. Well, I think the audience for true crime are mainly women. And we know that not only from statistics, from podcasts, but also from readership, from books. And I think there's more, there's more reasons for this. I think first and foremost, women are the victims of crime, hmm. especially violent crime, much more than men are, or in different circumstances. And uh, I don't know if I should go all feministic on you, but I, and I guess all the female friends I have, have all tried, if not sexual assault, then something like it. Hmm. And also trying to be outmaneuvered or overpowered by men being stronger than us. So I think for many women, violence, especially sexual violence, is a part of life or is, is mm. a fact of life. And the whole true crime thing, I read that some psychologists suggest that we see horror movies in order to practice to being scared. Mm. And I think that is a very interesting way of looking at it, that we are both coming to terms with our own fears while listening to it. But I think there's also a number of other reasons why true crime is so fascinating to us. One of the things I think is the safer we get um, mm. in our first world countries and in our lives, uh, the more intriguing crime becomes. It's mm. one of the few things that we cannot plan for, we cannot be secure about, mm. um, where the rest of our lives is very controlled and planned in so many ways. Our life expectancy is so long these days. Mm. And then there's the inherent good and evil. It's good stories. They attract mm. us. We mm. have always been people who enjoy, everybody loves a good story. And these have good and evil characters. So it's very easy for most true crime or anyone who listens to kind of place themselves within the mm. good of this story and it can make us all feel better mm. because it, it emphasizes that we are good persons. Yeah. And um, on top of that, I think it's just stories about like, some will say there's two stories to be told overall in the whole world. One is, um, I wish it was me, like the lottery mm. or whatever. Mm. And then the second one is, thank God it's not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Love it. Just on that true crime part. I, my brother, it's, I've got an older brother and uh, we're of an age now where we, it's when we speak to each other, we talk about what we watched on TV, Netflix, and pretty much what we both watch because we're both around about 50. I'm on the better side of 50. He's on the wrong side of 50 is mafia movies and mafia documentaries. And so I wonder as well, maybe when they talk about true crime in, you know, being very popular as with women as well. There's also men consume it, but in a different way. Like there's an obsession with things like these sort of very masculine mafia movies. 
And I wonder, but the reasons are very different. I mean, the subjects are very similar. It's about killings and it's about, you know, the good and evil. And it's about, you know, what I think the, the interesting thing about mafia movies is that they're these characters who are compelled to do evil acts, even though deep down they're very good people. That's the whole sort of way of portraying it, isn't it? That they're the victims of the system, if you like. But it's still, it's like men consume that, but maybe in different ways. That's just my psychological observation. So maybe because we don't feel victims of crime so much, you know, maybe we we are enticed by the power of, of the mafia movies and all that aspect of it. But it's still true crime, right? But in a different format. It, it would be so interesting to talk to men and women about their experience in true crime and mm. their listening patterns. Um, I would love to be on the side of data where I could sit and analyze and and look into age groups and genders to see the differences yeah. because we have the readership numbers, but it doesn't tell us very much about why we do it and why did the, the gender gap or why the gender mm. difference. I think you're right, Yana, but why? It, well, it's a theory. You know, you know, we don't, as men, fear crime so much. Um, it's not really, you know, we don't experience it in the same way that women do. And therefore, the way we think about crime is probably different. It seems like, you know, we like gangster movies and mafia movies because it's. Yeah, seems but there's, there's another thing that you guys like. Like, I know very few women who relish in seeing movies about the Second World War. No, to be honest, for me, that's that's oh, a very uh, that's a very male thing <laughs> for me to do. So I I think there is a gender gap. I've or, watched them all. <laughs> yeah. In color. Yeah. It's like a normal color. I don't know. It's like okay, I've got six hours yeah. to spare. Let me yeah. just kind of. But you know, the, the thing like war. I mean, like pretty much every every war movie is or not documentary is told from the troops' perspective. It's not told from the citizens' perspective. So therefore, it's very much appealing to men because it's about men. Like these are all documentaries and times when only men fought. Right? It doesn't it tell the a, stories yeah. about no, you know, no, no, no. Or, it is a very male gaze. And for many, many years, I think the spy genre has also been with the male gaze, especially mm. like, I, come on, I love James Bond movies, yeah, but right. that's because I like the whole uh, idea of being undercover and being somewhere. But we are seeing an increased, you can tell, an increased interest uh, from women in historical female figures. Mm. For instance, uh, we made our female spies and we did it with a female audience at heart. And there's no question that it's it's the women audience who haven't been told stories about what female heroines can do. Mm. So I do think we're seeing a shift in the way we tell stories. But at the same time, I do fear that with all this data that the platforms have, we get to tell stories that are very catered for an audience and and therefore might exclude another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get an echo chamber almost. Uh, yeah, right? it gets very niche that mm. you produce for a certain angle. I would say when, when I write stories, I don't write it with a male or female gaze, mm. but I would say uh, the first season of Murders by the Mediterranean, for instance, it was hard to ignore that most of the, the victims were women hmm. and that they were killed in the most cruel ways and that the perpetrators were men. It was very rare. I was able to find female uh, killers. And, hmm. um, and of course, so, so even though I, I don't think I necessarily bring a female gaze, it ended up being a very feministic show hmm. after all without wanting to do that.
Mm, interesting. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Even when we do have yeah. female killers, they tend to be glamorized and sexualized, don't they? By the media, it's almost like they're some seductive figure. Even the media, yeah. Well, they say there is a lot of uh, feminist research that suggests that female killers goes into two categories: they're either mad or they're bad. Right. Whereas uh, male killers tend to be able to kill for a multitude of reasons. It could be money, it could be organized crime, mm. it could be a heist gone wrong. But there's a like a there's more motifs being able to put on on male killers than there is on women. Mm. I think the whole a woman killing is kind of a betrayal of um, womanhood and mm. the essence of the woman, which is in all times suspected to be a mother. Mm. And when she takes a life, it is the opposite of giving a life and therefore the most horrible thing that can be done. Mm. So um, some of the stories I wrote looked into how the women are being portrayed when they've done this and what happens to them afterwards and how we actually might look at them today with a whole different perspective. It's clear that some of them were suffering from post-traumatic disorders, for instance. Mm. So you can also see going just back 30 or 40 years, how this has changed, how the mm. way we look at female killers is, is changing. Yeah. So let's start at the top. Tell me about a true crime series you've worked on. Give me the pitch first, the blurb about the series. What's the, what's the through story in this series? Let's start with that. And then maybe we can talk about why you were attracted to write about these stories. So start with the title and then what's the blurb on this? My new series is called Murder Down Under, and it's a series, uh, it's a true crime series about Australian killings. Hmm. And um, I lived in Australia for a while and I took my, uh, my master's there. And uh, for me, Australia is a very special country. I don't know if you know this, but serial killers, the top five countries with serial killers are almost only English speaking countries, hmm. which I find is very weird. Uh, it's almost like you have to speak English to be a serial killer. And Australia is uh, renowned for its many brutal murders. Yeah. And already when I lived there in 15 years ago, I was wondering what it was about Australia that produced so many serial killers and horrific killings. And uh, first of all, it's a huge country. And that means that it's very easy. It's very, very easy to hide a dead body. And, and this doesn't make, make it a good reason to do it, does it? So it's not like, oh, no, you but could hide a dead body over there. Well, no. maybe I'll kill somebody now. But you have to think of it differently. I'm from Denmark. And in Denmark, it's extremely hard to hide a dead body. Uh, very, very few people go missing. We have a social security system mm. that makes it almost impossible for people to disappear a long time. Whereas in Australia, there's different states and they don't necessarily have any information gathering uh, on the borders of the state. So that mm. means it's very easy to get rid of a dead body. And therefore, a person who will be stopped in Denmark after one killing might go on to kill 10 in Australia. Another very interesting thing is that the country, of course, has a very violent history. Mm. It was built on violence against its Aboriginal population, and the people going there were themselves victims of a cruel system in, in, in Europe that was sending them there as punishment. So um, 
in that sense, it's more like the US than it is in Europe, isn't it? And that's another reason. And then there's a whole macho culture in Australia. And I love Australia and Australians, but there is a very, very masculine kind of dogma and what it means to be a man. And that emphasizes that that kind of built into all this. So all in all, Australia is an extremely interesting country to to look at when it comes to serial killers and also how women killers are being Mm. portrayed because they're very few and far in between, but they're vilified beyond belief. So I set out to describe the 16 most interesting murder cases in Australia and also doing it with, you can say, a contemporary and a Scandinavian gaze because I can't hide where I'm from. So that means that all of these cases have been described internally in Australia, but this way I look at it from Mm. a a very contemporary feminist perspective. Mm. That was a very long talk. (laughs) That was brilliant. So 16 of the most interesting, how do you categorize interesting? Yes, very good question. How do you categorize an interesting true story, a true crime story? First of all, I look at what it meant. Of course, you can categorize it in a number of ways. You can say how many victims are there. That's one way of doing it. You can say how many lives are impacted over a frame of time. Some are mass murders. Some are three women serial killers, for instance. So it also goes to say, what did it do at the time? What did it represent at the time? Did new investigation methods come out of this way or out of this crime? That's another way of looking at it. Did new law end up being legislated because of this crime? Did it have an immense impact on the local area this crime was committed? And will it be remembered as such? Um, So there's a a number of different ways of Mm. seeing it. And then there's, of course, was there a a miscarriage of justice done as well? Mm. So... These stories are all very, very different. But for me, they represent something that is unique. It's different in investigation, not all of them, of course, some of them, and also leave a lasting legacy on on the local area and on the legislation uh, and the investigation of it. So out of those 16, share with us one, particularly I'm interested (laughs) in one which I know you've, we'll talk about it in a minute, you've been doing crime journalism for many years. So you've seen a lot, I imagine. Out of these 16, was there one that made you go, oh, but Yeah, but the crazy thing is, when I delve into them, almost all of them did. And when I selected them, I selected them from a number of overall criteria. Hmm. So every one I write, I go like, this one is just the, the main one. But right now, I'm investigating a story which is about a mother of four children who all died and she was convicted of killing all her four babies and she was convicted not on medical evidence but on her diary entries and there's a huge medical uh, and research community who's trying to ask for a pardon Hmm. because her four children all had genetic differences or genetic anomalies that could suggest that they died of natural causes Hmm. and she's been in prison for 18 years. Wow. And she is the most hated woman in Australia. Mm. And she might be innocent. So that story uh, really uh, touches a nerve in me, even though I myself do not have any kids. Mm. I think it's a, it's a very brutal story. 
it's a story about a woman who had four kids and who might not have been the best of mothers, but who overall seems she was a good mother. And when she left her husband, he went to the police with her diaries and, and accused her. Mm, wow. And you, she was convicted of that. Yeah, it's a crazy story. Do you present new evidence that hasn't been aired then? Because I imagine no. now you're in legal yeah. area, right? What was the, how do you do that? Well, I, I base my stories on all available resources. So mm. that means I buy a lot of the existing books that are on it. I, of course, read and see documentaries. But I haven't as such done new research. In this case, I'm actually considering doing new research because one of the scientists who have petitioned for this mother to be released is a Danish mm. scientist. Mm. So this would actually be one of the cases where it would make sense for me to reach out and have an in-depth conversation to the scientist uh, behind it. Mm. Would that ever uh, end up having any legal implications, like they would reopen a case based on... Well, actually, they already tried in 2019 and 20 to get, to get the case reopened. But the Supreme Court of New South Wales said that there was not enough new evidence for it to cause a retrial. So all they have left now done is to ask the governor of New South Wales for a pardon. Mm. There's all the legal, all the legal uh, appeals have been exhausted. So there, there will, I try... Most of the cases I cover are old cases, and I try only to describe them once the appeals have been done, mm. because there are relatives sitting out there who are over and over having to listen to their loved one's murders being regurgitated by people who have no idea what happened. Mm. So I try very much only to do old cases also because having some years distance to these cases makes us see them in a new light. Hmm. But there's no question that everyone who does true crime are essentially profiting from hmm. something horribly happened. And that is an ethical question that all of us has to ask ourselves. Is it worth regurgitating this particular case? Hmm. How do you deal with that, like that in your own mind? Yeah, I don't know. I think I try to, like everyone else, to justify it, hmm. uh, to justify that there are very valid information that needs to be told and that these stories can teach us something, hmm. both about just how it is to be a human being and the human condition, but also teach us that there are many greys and it's not all black and white. Hmm. And I guess try to have compassion both with, of course, with the victims and their families, but to some extent also to the people who commit these murders hmm. because very few of them are evil. I, th I think it's a concept I have a struggle with, the evil concept, mm. but very few of them are. And I do believe most of us would be able to kill if we were in circumstances that demanded it from us. Mm. So I guess I try in many ways uh, to use the psychologists and sociologists. There's uh, two guys called Sykes and Matza, mm. and they made uh, an amazing theory in the 60s called techniques of neutralization. And it was actually a theory that was made to kind of describe how white collar criminals, uh, mm. financial criminals, try to minimize the, the hurt they cause. And I think we all do that. And it's like minimize the, the crime itself and justify that the, the victim 
you know, kind of victimize the victim that they were asking for it and all these ranges mm, of, yeah, of techniques. Right, yeah. Exactly. Victimless crimes and mm. and how we all deal with the, with the things we we're do. We're all doing it. It's <laughs> just taking orders, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. We just, uh, uh, I call it the Nazi defense. Somebody told me to do it. Yeah. And I did. if I didn't do it, somebody else would have done it. Mm. And when I was a crime writer many years ago at a tabloid, I, I struggled a lot because there were always an editor telling me how I should frame this particular story. And now I tell myself I can do the stories exactly like how I want them to be done mm, mm. with the complexity and the depths and the ethics that I want to do now. But well, what's I'm the still- difference then between, for example, how a newspaper, a tabloid particularly, would write about crime and then now you have the bandwidth in a podcast do justice to it what's the difference in the frame there's a for me there's a huge difference in how a tabloid and a news journalist go about crime and how i do them in a podcast because looking back at a crime and having all the facts enables you to do a more societal and historical reference and a setting Mm. how did this crime take place and what were the circumstances back when i was a uh, a true or a crime reporter at the tabloid, it was from day to day. Mm. And that meant sometimes you made mistakes or sometimes you suggested or hinted that somebody was a suspect and they might end up not being that. Mm. For instance, I was covering a horrific crime where a young girl, a 10-year-old girl, disappeared and was later found uh, raped and scandalized and, and killed in the basement. And like any other crime, family is the first thing that gets suspected in a thing like that. And I had a massive argument with my editor who wanted to to suggest that the father was a suspect. And it wasn't a lie, but I just couldn't write it. And Mm. I put my job on the line not to write it. And instead, they made another more seasoned colleague write it, like suggested in a different reportage. And... Mm. So that's kind of the dilemmas you end up with as a, as a crime reporter. And for me, looking at the case from afar and trying to describe it more factual and mm. with all the details for me is more satisfying and also allows me to, to have empathy mm. to the characters in, in these stories. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's powerful stuff, isn't it? Yeah. I was just thinking about also, the Australia thing, you know, in the sense that whenever I think about Australia and like crime, the thing that comes to my head, I don't know if it's a, a, a reality or not, is backpacker crime, like these sort of backpackers that go disappeared. You know, it's a woman backpacker goes to Australia and disappears somewhere and then shows up, you know, the body shows up years later. Now, that's just my image. Like, of your 16, were any like that? Or is that just kind of a fantasy image I've got of Australia? No, no, that's very much the idea of Australia. It's I the this the show, the 16 episodes, the first one is about the backpacker killers, uh, where mm. 10, 13, I think at the end of it, uh the the killer was convicted of seven deaths, but probably there's 20 or 30 more backpackers buried somewhere out there and will never be found. So that's very much what happens. But some of the other cases in Australia are maybe very different. There's a, I just finished a story about a serial killer in Perth 
who targeted young women and was only found 20 years later because the DNA under one of the victim's mm. fingernails was, uh, was being processed in a better way. So there are all kinds of stories, but uh, some of them definitely. There's another very famous story it's called The Bodies in the Barrels or the, the, the Killings in Snowtown, where a little small town north of Adelaide gets to be the, the center of all of Australia's attention when eight bodies are found in barrels in a, um, in a closed bank vault. So, uh, so there are all kinds. Yeah, what I know. Was it a gang murder or? No, no, it turned out to be, uh, well, I call the story The Apprentice because it turns out to be a very sadistic killer. One guy who finds himself a posse of co-killers. He uh, trains young men how to, to target and kill a very vulnerable young uh, homosexuals. And then he, um, he empties their bank's accounts. Wow, that's really bizarre that's very strange for a crime it is you can understand like the bonnie and clyde type seduction right you know somebody just goes along because it's all very glamorous or you can understand somebody doing it on their own but that i've never kind of come across that before that's bizarre it happens very very rarely and the story um it starts with with this one guy who uh who is just he was probably born a psychopath, but he ends up finding these young men that he saves, um, saves mm. who are homosexual, and he rips them out of the jaws of uh, a homosexual transvestite who they have been in relations with. And the ones he doesn't convert to being killers, he kills himself. It's uh, a unique story because very, very few killings are done by by more than one person, it's it's mm. quite rare. So this is uh, an asexual story. What I found out is, like podcast wise, it's very very hard to describe these serial killings with just an hour. Like yeah. uh, they're they're so complex stories, and the whole like for instance, this this the bodies in the barrel story starts with should start with a diagram over the persons involved. Mm. Because it's so complex. Um, mm. So that makes it for very hard telling, especially in audio, where you don't have all these visuals to help you mm. in the storytelling. Whereas the story of the lesbian vampire killer up in Brisbane with one murder and, and, and one perpetrator is, is easier to tell. Yeah. <laughs> but even the title of that one is like, okay, all right, I've seen the horror movie of that one. So yeah. you've already, you can imagine what it is, right? Is Exactly. And uh, so I've written almost a hundred murder cases from the Nordic countries. I did that last year under lockdown. And what I found with all these murders was that they were gruesome in their own way, but they were in a Nordic context and none of them, none of them measured up to Australia and the killings there. They are truly unique in that country. I'm sure somebody who delved into the American serial killers would feel mm. the same. But Australia only has 20 million inhabitants. Mm. It's actually not a lot in a space that's many, many times the size of Europe. Wow. So the sheer size of the country combined with its, its history makes it quite unique to, to report from. Fascinating. What, what, do you, uh, what do you know about murder cases that most people don't know in the sense that you've written hundreds of stories about 
true crime. And I imagine a lot of people, you know, like me, are amateur consumers. But you're you're a professional, literally. What do you know that most of the world doesn't know about these stories in the sense of like you see motivations most people don't see or you you have a different perspective about them? I think what strikes me across all these different nations, now I describe murders in the Nordic countries and also in the Mediterranean area, now Australia. I think what strikes me is, of course, the type of person who commits more than one murder, that there are many reasons. There's, there's a lot of categories of murder. And after writing, what, almost 150 I would say, I would very much say there's the, the murderer who does it out of enjoyment, and then there's the ones who do it for survival. And those two are very different species of, of human beings. Hmm. Wow. So I think, yeah, I, I think, like, for instance, there was this Italian woman who, who killed three men in a span of 10 years, but what was very saying about was, was that she was raped multiple times, deeply traumatized and suffering from PTSD, which is extremely different from the serial killer who emerged in Perth and killed three young women hmm. and afterwards described his fantasies in his own short stories in details. You know, those are, are very different. And I would say more often than not, Killers, even if they have enjoyed what they did, have an innate sense to negate what they've done, deny what they've done, and blame the victims for what they ended up doing. So I would say there's definitely the professional or the innate killer, and then there's mm. the rest of us who might kill in mm. special circumstances. If we lived in Australia, it sounds. <laughs> no, no, no. I love Australia. Yeah, There's many I, good things to be said about that country as well. It, the series is born from a deep, deep love of the country. So Yeah, it's a um, contrast, isn't it? That's the point. There's so many like, is, nice people, and yet they have this dark edge. It's like everything, isn't it? Yes. I'm sure you look at any culture, it's the same, right? Yes and no. I would say I was a happy, um, I was a happy hitchhiker until I moved to Australia. Hmm. After moving to Australia, I have never, ever hiked again. There is definitely a difference between the Nordic welfare society where our initial response to strangers is, uh, is a trust hmm. and to Australia where you do not open your car window or stop if you meet someone hmm. in an emergency because you don't know what they might do to you. Yeah, well, exactly. Is that, yeah, I mean, it's culturally... Yes. Like with very, the US, isn't it? It's the same. Yes. It's that sort of settler mindset, isn't it? I think it is. I think it mm. is. But it, it's so many, it's hundreds of years ago and still that, mm. that is still there. Um, mm -mm. Yeah, which that's is not going to really, change anytime soon. I'm not sure, no. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it's fascinating as well. I'm curious about the idea of audio as a medium for storytelling with true crime compared to other forms. So obviously movies and written, written being either books or 
journalistic writing. Is there something unique about audio that you found has taken true crime into another area? Like I consume crime on every platform there is. So I might not be the best one to, to look at this from the outside. I am not myself a big podcast listener when it comes to true crime shows, especially because a lot of them appear to be done by people who, who haven't much of a previous knowledge about crime and legislative or investigative affairs. Hmm. And I struggle with that. So I would say that the podcast media has been a cheap, affordable way of people without previous knowledge to talk about true crime. Hmm. That can be a good or bad thing, whoever you are. But for me as a professional, it hasn't heightened the standards of hmm. true crime reporting. Do you think there's a risk now that we've overdone true crime in podcasts? You know, we've started with Serial that really popularized it. Um, we've got some really high-end productions, the stuff that you're doing, for example. Now there's a, everybody's doing their own sort of democratized versions of it. Like you say, people who are amateurs. Um, is there a risk there's too much out there? Or would it evolve? Do you think there's ways in which this is evolving? I think it's a little bit like when YouTube came as a medium and we all could be photographers or video videographers, film. <laughs> we could all make our own films for, for YouTube mm. and the idea of the democratization of the media. I think it's a little bit the same with podcasting, but as it is with YouTube, I think it will find its level. I think whenever a new media comes along, whether it's a social media like TikTok or the, the, the audio thing, there will always be a, a risk of some genres kind of just being abused and abandoned or just run with mm. it. I think it will settle with time. But I think before it settles, there will be a, a saturation with some genres. Yes, I think mm. it will. Mm. Um, I, the only podcast I truly enjoy is actually uh, an amazing psychologist called um, Esther Perel, mm. who does um, couples therapy on open microphone. And for me, that is really true crime wow. because there you get to see what relationship does to people and what people do to each other yeah. on, on an emotional level. And for me, that is fascinating stuff esther perel yes um she has she has two shows she's uh, uh how do we begin is the one with people and how's work is the one she does for people who work together cool i'll check those out yeah they, as a they, psychologist they, I'll enjoy yeah that. they 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 are amazing shows and i think they are deep deep dives into the human psyche Mm, um, a dark place. Yes. <laughs> I mean, is. most of my reading is psychiatry, really. Right. Uh, that's yeah. what I spend my time on. Fascinating. I love it. You know, and I, I love your, your passion for it as well. And like from the human angle, I want one thing I didn't ask you on in terms of producing a true crime podcast. I don't think people realize how many people are involved. You know, it seems to be, well, maybe there's a narrator and that's it. Maybe there's a host, maybe there's an actor. Give us an idea of, for example, the the last uh, podcast like Murder Down Under or Murder by the, Murders by the Mediterranean, 
Sure, sure. Um, how many people are involved in these productions? I can I can tell you a bit about uh, first of all when I did the Nordic stories I was the one researching and then I wrote them and there was an editor and then somebody taped them, but when we started producing our own shows we had to change it because. I'm able to research in many languages, but not in Turkish and not in Portuguese and not in Spanish. So instead, we set up almost this pipeline on how to do a scripted podcast. And I should say one should differentiate a lot between the hosted podcast and the scripted podcast, because mm. I feel the, the scripted podcast is a genre by itself that needs a lot of work. So, for instance, when we do our productions, we start with an overall search for stories that I do from the criteria we talked about, like them being exceptional by the number of victims or the impact on the local society or the investigation and the convictions in it. Then we find local journalists that research the crimes and sometimes are able, for instance, to get the court transcripts from the crime. Then they do a, a rough translation of these into English that I sent to me. Then I write the story, then retranslate it back into English for them to check that the facts are correct. Then we have a Danish editor going through my Danish scripts. And then we have the commissioning editor from the platform we have commissioned that has bought the show to read it through and to ask questions. Then we send it to the translators. Then there's an editor for each language that adapts the translation to more audio-friendly languages. And then we have found local voices. And I think this is the most important to have the right voices mm. that actually um, um, tapes the shows. And then at the end of the day, we have the sound designer and the final product. When we started doing this, I thought, uh, I'll research and then we'll try and translate and then I will speak them because I do believe that speaking your own podcasts give a legitimacy to the podcast and a, and a tone of voice that really works. But it turned out my voice was too old, <laughs> which I laugh because I'm 49. And, oh, same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm obviously too old for my own stories. Oh, dear. So, so we actually spend a, a lot of time finding the right voices. But uh, as you can tell, it's, uh, it's like a pipeline. And when mm. we do a season that's normally 16 shows, it takes uh, four to five months yeah. from we, uh, we get the pitch and, until the, the final episode is done. Wow. How many people do you think, roughly? We, um, you probably have... Well, it depends on number of languages. But for this, ep this uh, the last one of Murder by the Mediterranean, I think we were 20 or 25 people involved altogether oh, yeah. um, in a production. Um, it's amazing. You don't realize, do you, just how much detailed work goes into that? You're just consuming it. You might only think maybe two people, three people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and actually, we're looking into maybe doing uh, uh, some some conversion of some American shows that we're being commissioned to to do in different languages, which is a spoken podcast. Mm. But a, a good spoken podcast is scripted as well. Mm -mm. Like there will be bits of the story that's pre-recorded by a different voice. And the people in the studio have a manuscript to follow mm. as well. Maybe mm. a rough manuscript, but still a manuscript that you have to cover these points. Like mm. we're doing now, of course, we have to plan. Mm. Otherwise, it would be horrible to listen to. Yeah, just be a ramble. 
Exactly. Yeah. Well, it was a lot of fun. I know it's a dark subject, but I, I, I really appreciate the depth we've gone into this. You're very welcome. You've been listening to The Age of Audio with me, Graham Brown, from the award-winning podcast agency Pickle & Co. To get access to all the audio conversations and book content for The Age of Audio, go to www.theageofaudio.com. One more time, theageofaudio.com.